when I work with people with the sound bowls, you know, within five minutes, I can just watch either their bodies tensing up because they're really in resistance to whatever's happening to them, or they just like melt immediately. And the ones that tense up, that's it's a really interesting thing to see if they can let it go or not. Some Sometimes they can't. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for The Rose Woman podcast, where every week we attempt to bring you something that will create a little bit more opening or expansion in the mind, body, and spirit, maybe make you go, huh? Combine a little science, a little embodiment, a little spirituality to help us all move toward a little more liberation. So I'm very excited to do today's episode. It's on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, group ecstasy, which is to say those states of expanded consciousness or altered states of consciousness we reach when we're in the company of other people. In fact, that can only be reached in the company of other people. Dancing together, singing together, playing in various ways, tantric sexuality, working in a rhythm, sports teams even have this phenomenon where we get a kind of collective entrainment that changes our neurobiology and changes our feeling. So this first episode is about singing together. It's one of the easiest ways to reach a conjoined ecstatic state. I can remember one time I sing sort of, well, I used to sing high soprano, now I'm singing more mezzo. And I was at the far end of the array of this large group of people. And at the far end, on the other side away from me, was a man maybe in his mid-70s who was singing with a deep basso profundo And one moment, he was sounding his note, and me on the other side of the stage, I was sounding mine. And I could feel those two notes merge into one, and then the entire sound of the the group merged into one, and all of a sudden, we were one body. I remember that as one of the early peak states, singing with other people. In my 2021 book, The Nine Gifts, A First Aid Kit for Mind, Body, and Spirit, I have a whole chapter devoted to the gift of music. Uh, the gift of music, and there's interviews with solfeggio frequency artist Tim Van Deest, an interview with Marissa Lai on deep listening, listening between the notes, on music's healing power, on its ability to help our frozen emotions flow, how it can alleviate suffering, how it impacts the corpus callosum in the brain, We talk in there about developing polyphonic awareness. There's an interview with Anandra George, a wonderful sound and mantra artist on the healing power of voice. There's a section on the healing power of percussion. In that book I write, we all know that doing things with others, whether playing soccer or having a great game of charades, makes us feel good. It turns out that singing as part of a group around a campfire or as part of a choir has real benefits as well. Research during the past decade has shown that being part of a choral group can calm the heart, alleviate stress and depression, help improve symptoms of Parkinson's and respiratory disease, and increase life expectancies. It's not surprising because being an active part of a community alone is enormously important to most human beings. Add to that deep intentional breathing and the extended use of the vocal cords, and you have a homespun recipe for longevity. Group singing has likely been a keystone of human civilization for thousands of years. It may be as old as music itself. 
Bone flutes found in caves in France date back 40,000 years, and the human voice used for chanting and singing is an even older instrument. You can read more about the gift of music as well as the other eight gifts. Actually, there's a bonus gift, the gift of stillness, which is at the end in that book, which is available at rosewoman.com. Okay, back to this episode. As I said before, various cultural and spiritual practices have long utilized music to induce ecstatic experiences, whether it's religious rituals, shamanic ceremonies, ecstatic dance traditions that incorporate rhythmic music, they all induce kind of an altered state of consciousness and facilitate a sense of unity or transcendence or connection with, dare I say it, the divine. There's an older book that Oliver Sacks, a renowned neurologist and author who is known for his investigations into unusual neurological conditions and the human capacity for resilience, wrote. He was not a musicologist per se, but he made significant contributions to our understanding of how the brain interacts with and responds to music individually. He wrote the book Musicophilia, Tales of Music in the Brain, and in there, there's a bunch of important findings. Uh, one is how music plays on memory. It can trigger very powerful recollections that other stimuli cannot. You see some pretty amazing stories of what happens with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia when a song is played and how it sort of opens up a gateway to accessing old memories. He also focused on what happens when you do movement, like music's interplay with movement, particularly with people who had Parkinson's disease. I know people who can barely walk around with Parkinson's, but you bring them into a dance floor and you put the music on and it accesses a whole nother place where they can move their limbs in kind of a new old way. Music can restore a sense of self, he found. He also looks at things like musical perception, earworms, that songs that get stuck in one's head and where that resides in the brain. Synesthesia phenomenon, where you hear music so vividly that you can see it or you look at colors and you hear sounds. He was really going into how music is so deeply wired into all the components of our brain. There are even some theories that suggest that music co-evolved with humans as a form of social bonding. A study in 2020 by Patrick Savage says that the theories of the evolution of musicality have focused mainly on the value of music for specific adaptive contexts such as mate selection, parental care, coalition signaling, and group cohesion. But he extends on that proposal saying that social bonding is an overarching function that unifies all of these theories and that musicality enabled social bonding at larger scales than grooming and other bonding mechanisms that were available in ancestral primate societies. So way to take away the musical magic there, uh, Dr. Savage. But truly, if it's at this level of our human stack at this operating system, it would sure explain a lot. It would even explain why newborn babies have a sense of rhythm, uh, why they prefer rhythmic music to non-rhythmic music, and why they can begin to synchronize their movements to rhythm, even, even just days out of the womb. So with this at the base stack of our human functioning, our human consciousness or awareness, you can understand a little bit more why how getting entrained in 
others' music-making activities might change our sense of awareness. So music has the power to engage and stimulate multiple brain regions that are involved in emotion and reward and motor coordination. It can trigger the release of all kinds of neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and endorphins, which are associated with pleasure and mood regulation and euphoria. But then you have this musical entrainment quality, which is the induction of the ecstatic states that we're talking about, uh, overwhelming feelings of joy, intense emotions, heightened states of consciousness. And when people are in this state, you have the opportunity to have an incredibly strong emotional response, extreme well-being. Uh, alter the state of mind altogether. My friend Brenda calls it in the Kirtan world, in the chant world, being stoned on the bav. How once you're in that state, it like it shuts down critical thinking. It opens the heart. People are crying and hugging each other and just feeling so great, you know, so of a peace with everyone else around them. So that's the topic for today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about entrainment in music. And we're going to talk a lot more about direct experiences of how moving through these innate human skills around music can move people away from self-consciousness and into flow, into effortless, euphoric flow without the sense of, of ego. To do that, I have an amazing guest, Claire Victor. Claire is 20 years a director of an 80-person-plus choir. She's also a sound healer. Uh, She works with music in multiple ways, not only bringing these groups together and and creating experiences with choir, uh, but even looking and exploring things like transition choirs, where people are being sung out during the time of their death. And also how using things like sound bowls or frequencies can help access new states of healing. So I start by asking Claire to describe what it's like to bring a group of people together in choir and what happens for them. If you look through the ages, it's like, what was music? Music was tribal. It was used to bring people together. They'd been working really hard or hunting and gathering. And then the music was used as a joining point to say, okay, we're going to just like rest now and experience something together that's not hard. Like this is a place of stopping the, the busyness of the body and stopping the eternal trap mind chatter that goes on now in, you know, in our age. And so, Or it was used to arouse people, uh, to take them into higher states of consciousness, to arouse them to go battle. So, But it was always this ignition key to get people to come together. And so we used to, in America, for example, we all sang together. I grew up in the era with Sing Along with Mitch. I grew up in the era where it wasn't these superstars the song was the thing, the thing. So if a song came out by Cole Porter, Night and Day, every single famous artist recorded it. And every person got to hear that song, even if they didn't like Frank Sinatra. Nancy 
Jones was going to sing it or Joan Baez, you know, I mean, really, it was like the song was the thing. And so we were more connected. And then MTV hit and everybody had to be perfect. And people stopped being called into singing. And I think we lost an intrinsic part of our soul as a tribe in this nation. So the people that call people together, whether it's in kirtan or church music or heavy metal, whatever it is that speaks to these small groups, I think we're all looking for a place to stabilize and ground to know that we belong. Um, I'm not going to get too into this, but if you get into the chakra systems, the, the root chakra is about being safe, belonging, know that you're worthy, being able to fit in. And we're all so erratically different and so interestingly different these days that we tend to look at our differences. And so what music does is it levels the playing field. So when we find music or spaces that we like to sing in, what literally happens in choir, for example, People come in and their brains are going, oh, my God, I, left, I forgot this. I didn't memorize. You know, I, I have to do this tomorrow. Why am I in choir? And they're in their beta state of consciousness. And it's out of control most of the time. So they come in, they're dropping stuff. They're, you know, restless. So the gathering time was kind of just calling them into presence, whether I used heart math or whether I used a series of oming. But it was really calling them back into their bodies because when our mind is going we lose our bodies we step out of our bodies and we become defensive and we become resistant to the outside we don't let things in because we're we're so protected we don't feel safe the second chakra is about how to how to connect with people and how to be the soft divine feminine and allow things to come to you and we're also busy doing and putting out that the music becomes a resting place for us to come back into our body, into our lower three chakras, not so much into this esoteric, you know, connect with the divine because music will connect us there automatically. So the, the coming together and calling into presence is one thing that the first music does. And then as people start to sing and they do the work and they're working, they're learning their parts and it's hard work, you know, in that kind of a situation with singing, it's, they hate it because <laughs> it's work and it is mind work. But then something starts to happen, even in those times where we're just beginning something, the music does start happening and we start to sing and the parts start to come together and the brain begins to slow down. So the brain drops from this overactive beta into an alpha theta state of consciousness, which is maybe that doesn't happen in heavy metal. I don't know because I don't listen to it. But in most other singing, whether it's music that calls people up to be dancing together, there's this patterning that starts to happen in the brainwave where we pattern with each other. We connect like mushrooms, you know, like the mycelium starting to give, I might come in the room depressed and you might come in happy and somehow your joy connects with my shadow and my shadow connects with your joy to become a whole unit. So people feel wholesome. They feel more whole when they leave because this intricate pattern of allowing, we allow, we open, the music opens us and allows us to receive. 
from other people, to connect to other people on this wordless way. It's it's interesting. I, I, I do a lot of bird whistles and stuff. And so I'm interested in how birds learn their song. And one of the myths I used to tell was that if they heard one note of their song, they could break into their song, like robins have a song, finches have a song. And some of the scientific sort of studies they've done is they actually mimic, usually the father bird, the baby mimics, but they're hearing that all the time, the songs in, in the egg. So they start out right away, pretty much knowing the song, mimicking, and because they've been exposed to it. And that song then tells the other birds they're in tribe, that that's their tribe. If When they take the birds' eggs right away, and they incubate them, and they train them to a... Um, a synthesized song of the bird, same bird, you know, but it's their song, but it's synthesized. They will revert back to the tempo and the rhythm of the live bird. So there's something genetically, I think, encoded in our bodies that's music. You know, when I walk in nature, I hear the song of the wind. I hear, I feel the earth. And so we have so isolated ourselves as human beings in the world of logics and busyness that we don't take time to pause and we we don't know how to to listen with our heart anymore. Mm. I had an experience this last weekend. I was facilitating a group and we were in the woods and they were laying out on mattresses with blindfolds on and we had some speaker music going on and the, it was a nature preserve. So the birds were insane, so loud, so participatory. And every time the song would change, they would quiet down. And then they would start singing again, and it would be somehow synchronized to what was playing on the speaker. Like they were creating a harmonic container, even with the recorded music, which I thought was phenomenal to witness. Right. And I, and I think that's the opportunity that singing in groups does. So, you know, so people will come in, you know, into a group in their own little sphere of consciousness, be it calm or crazy. And by the end of the night, there's something magical that has happened where all our brain waves have sunk into a different pattern that's still ours, but it's it's a healthier pattern. It's the pattern we go to when we dream. It's the pattern we go to when we sleep or meditate. And yet we're fully awake. We could talk a little bit about like the group formation that happens. Like when you get a new class, like a new group of people, how long does it take before they're comfortable enough with one another. Like, can you tell me about the process of it going from a collection of isolated individuals to a group over time? I, I feel like I, I got a good sense of what happens as people arrive into a rehearsal or into a practice on a normal day, but I'm kind of assuming that's when they've already gotten to know each other. What's mm-hmm. it like to go from personalities to an organism? You know, establishing rapport is always an interesting thing. I used to when I was early on in my teaching and and practice of calling people together with music and art. I used to have to think myself through it, and I took class notes, and you know, I'd have um, icebreaker exercises and stuff. And I've learned to just trust to be able to read the room. And what that means is, I have to be in a place as a facilitator to be grounded and yet open and pay attention and witness people. And see, you can kind of start to notice who who's going to be shy and who's going to be the look at me, look at me. And 
And so it's important to become sort of an entity to them that they can trust. And so whether you do that by singing or opening with a song or doing something right away that engages them and brings them out of their mind, or whether you start with jokes, you know, oftentimes speakers will start with jokes or something, or ways of telling them who you are. I prefer to do it without talking about myself necessarily, because that invites them to participate and doesn't put me so much on a pedestal, which can sometimes happen, you know, tell me what to do instead of the invitation to create something together. But it's it's really about being so authentically yourself and being so present myself that when I sing, I think I actually become transparent. So I allow myself to be seen, but I also allow there's a spirit that I'm connecting with. It's almost like I let people see where my connection is. It's not coming from inside of me. It's coming from all around me and through me and of me. And so I think when people experience that with any facilitator or choral director or whatever, they go, oh, I want to be on that bus. Or, oh, I, this uh, this is weird. And so they kind, they kind of start to either lean in or lean out. And I think the faster you get them engaged in something that's easy, like 11 ohms or going around and singing some silly song, you know, or, or having to close your eyes. That's one I really use a lot is close your eyes so that you're not seen because people are terrified of being seen singing. They're afraid. This goes back to what you were saying about MTV when, when it made the music making visual and then you had to look a certain way or, you know, uh, that that's very interesting just from a shutting people down that if you, who don't want to be physically seen. And also you get kind of weird looking when you're singing. Contorted faces. Blah. <laughs> so it's, it's a different profession to be a visual singer than it is to just forget yourself. So closing your eyes. I want to pause and go back to where you were talking about becoming this sort of transparent, trustworthy channel and take you back to sort of early in your career. Can you pinpoint, you know, when that arose for you? Was it always that way or like, I was a performer for a long time before I was a, a transparent singer. And when I began singing, I, I mean, I always sang. I was the kid that was thrown up in front of the class to sing, and I was, you know, the lead in the musicals all the time and stuff. But I happened to be a kid that couldn't talk. I stuttered, and I was really shy and had a speech impediment and a lisp. And my mother was bright enough to get me a guitar in fourth grade, and I started singing and playing guitar. And it... I could talk because I could mm. sing, but I couldn't go anyplace for a long time without my guitar in front of me. I needed that between me and anybody because I was socially anxious. So then when I decided I was going to be like this performer, being on stage as a character is really easy for me, but being on stage as myself was hard. And I, I literally would shake. I had horrible stage fright for many, many years. Where it started to change was when I particularly became a practitioner, which is, you know, I've got more into what is spirit and what what is music and how does it flow through instead of do I have to create it or is it creating me or is it, you know, am I mimicking something or do I have my own song? I started songwriting and 
the songwriting, because it was mine, started to open me to a new level of confidence and trust in myself. I would still be nervous about performing in big venues and stuff, but I had to trust that it was com- something coming through me and not something that was being put on me. And I think that in group singing, I think the invitation is just that, not like everybody's going to imitate me now, but let's do this and let's see what comes out of you. And how does it relate to each other? And how does it create the harmonics actually, I think, come closest to before the circle of fifths shut everything down. We Music was more of an aspect to take us up into the heavens and connect us with the heavenly music, with the music of the spheres. And the circle of fifths was very convenient because now you can go any place in the world and say, hey, we're playing this in the key of C and we can all play it together. So it, it was um, something organizing people to get to play more together, but it also shut down that channel, which, you know, the sound healing and singing together. There's, I love the imperfection of it because that's what creates the harmonics. What is the circle of fifths for people who don't know? And and what do you, what do you mean it shut down the connection to the music of the spheres? That's a pretty bold statement. Before the um, Beethoven's harpsichord, what's it called? The well-tempered harpsichord, I think it is. I'm not good at the science business, you know, at words, I just do intuitive, but music was not scaled to A440. A440 is sort of like what everything is set. If you tune a piano, you tune it to A440. If you tune a guitar, A is 440. If you tune a saxophone, it's tuned based on this system. When the piano, the harpsichord was made, they took the um, spaces and made put them even between the keys. So they made different intervals before it was more open. And so in chanting in in like if you look at the ikaros the medicine songs more the kirtan and because the different um india and things like the ragas have completely different musical scales there's like three notes for every one note right so they create more dissonance and more um allowance for the set not not to be even tempered the way that our american music is tempered too I, I can't really explain it, but the circle of fifths is a tool that allowed us to take that system, close it down so that like you can't play the piano the same way to some American piece of music as you would have to to play along with an Indian uh, raga. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can play the piano with a raga myself. But- so this Western pitch, this A440, mm-hmm. in some way you feel closed off an access point or made it more regular, how how would you say that change impacted? I think that every person has their own music in them and we all learn a song together, but we all have to be a little bit different because we're all a little different. And so when you force a vibrational tone on somebody that's not their vibrational place that makes them go, oh, it's like making little clones of everybody on some level. And that's why sound feeling has gotten so big lately because you start working with sound bowls and shamanic voice and things like that, where these the sounds are kind of 
being created out of thin air by me vocally I'm talking about, but the sound balls, they can be tuned to a 440 kind of a thing. But once they start reverberating the music, it becomes wider and wider and the sounds start to induce different harmonic tonalities. And it's almost as if when I play the bowls, it's almost as if they change according to who's in the room. Mm, yeah. They, they start to vibrate differently and it's not a anymore. It's something more. So I think the closed system, again, it's rigid and I think that part of our problem is with people is we're just so rigid all the time and defensive, like I said in the beginning, that the music is such a tool to soften us. Let's talk a little bit about medicine songs and things like Icaros or shamanic singing. What do you know about that? When you're working in that field of consciousness, it's so intuitive and there it becomes more... I, I don't have any other word for it except shamanic in terms of they do hear the plants. I mean, I work with plant medicine and, and you do, you can talk to the plants. The talks, the plants talk to you like when they get, get into, for example, how did people know how to make ayahuasca? And it's, you know, a combination of two different plants and there's thousands and millions of plants in the Amazon. And it's like the plants told them. So, what are they singing is the question. What are the Icaros? Are they, where did they even come from and why? And I think that my sense of it is they are medicine and the medicine comes from the earth and the river and the, they're elemental. I'm, I'm very elemental. And I really believe that if people could tune into the elements more and learn about them more and really what they are, that that's what I think music has an opportunity to give us because when we release into music, we lose our mind. And I, I don't know if this is true or not, but in Egypt, the whole Egyptian mythology with the Pharaoh, you know, when he's, he dies, they, uh, uh, they take out his organs. One of the gods takes his organs out and cleanses them and puts them in, jars with herbs so that he has his organs when he's reborn the next day except they take the brain they suck it out and they throw it away because it's no good they don't need it so i i think that's, that's funny very because funny. do you think it's because like you get a new brain you get in your new incarnation you get new memories or they figure or is it a, a broader concept of consciousness i think it's a broader concept of consciousness it's the it's the pharaoh and and it's the all-knowing kind of a thing why do you need to think if you know everything why do you need to think so music somehow turns the brain off and not turns it off. It turns off that busy and it opens other channels. It's the only thing that lights up all areas of our brain at once. When they do like brain scan on people singing and or listening to music even, all of the brain centers light up as opposed to the compartmentalization of the rest of our lives where, you know, the prefrontal cortex is doing this and this is doing that over there. This music connects our brain. It weaves our back together. And that's then we become more wholesome and more open, I think. And that's what, what if we're just become, we become transmitters then and antenna at the same time. And that's part of sort of the tuning in. That's my experience when I'm leading or singing along yeah. and, and that, 
I am a transmitter and a receiver at the same time. Incredible. And it, it's also with the air in between us. Um, okay. I want to ask you if someone has never had a sound healing experience, like with the bowls or with a singer, could you describe what that's like? What's going on there? Like if I was walking into a ceremony for the first time or a sound healing for the first time, what might I expect? Well, it depends on who's who's doing it. Some people just let the bowls do their thing. And because the bowls will take people because of the nature of the sound and the resonance and the field it creates in a room, it will take you with it. And I think we respond to it because we basically... The bowls are, you know, made of quartz crystal, and that's been set in a in a formation to create. This is A. This is G. Whatever, and our bodies are also made of pretty much the same quartz and elementals, and we're water. And so, if you look at the studies of what vibrations do on water, that the Japanese gentleman did. If that's our body and you have these layers of going on, you're the water in our bodies, I think, is forming beautiful things. And but what I think happens in a session for me, because I do intuitive work in it also, people come in and I establish rapport with them. And again, by reading the room, sometimes it's through an invocation. Sometimes it's I take them outside and have them be outside and just introduce themselves, whatever it is. But then they they drop in and they lay down and they have all these expectancies. And then the sound starts. And I don't use just crystal bowls. I use a lot of different weird tools and whatnot. But the frequency starts to take them into this, the potential of taking them into a lucid state of consciousness where they're in a delta, theta sort of space, and they are in, oh, you know, I call it journey, shamanic journeying. They take off, they go visit ancestors, they go, or they call them into the room. The, the energies come into the room, they connect up because the sound somehow opens them. I couldn't explain it to you scientifically to save my life. Every sound is different to every person. And so what I also have happened when I have worked is then medicine melodies start to drop through. And they're just, they're not English because as soon as you put words on things, people's minds start to work. And something about adding in the vocal vibration on top of the bowl vibration, it tells a story. And somehow I get information transported through it. I really can't explain it. And I... You know, when I when I work with people with the sound bowls, you know, within five minutes, I can just watch either their bodies tensing up because they're really in resistance to whatever's happening to them, or they just like melt immediately. And the ones that tense up, that's it's a really interesting thing to see if they can let it go or not. Some sometimes they can't. You know, sometimes people leave from a sound bowl session and go oh, that really hurt. I didn't really like it. It made me you know, feel. So it's, and I noticed that those people are the ones whose bodies kind of go rigid as opposed to the other ones that go off and start going into lucid dreaming and dream worlds and what I call journeying, which is a whole nother avenue of 
sound, you know, in the shamanic world, typically people give me reports of some type of healing. Now, where does that healing come from? Like, for example, I had a woman call me in tears. She had been to one of my sessions five years ago, and she called me in tears. I had put all my sound bowls away, packed. I'm moving. I put everything packed in, wrapped up, gone in my house still. And she was in tears, and she said, "I, my best a friend of mine, we all work in Kaiser. Her son just got diagnosed, um, 10-year-old, with an inoperable brain tumor, horrible prognosis. Can you please do a sound session for her and some of her friends? We all work there. So I was in tears. I said, yes, I can. She, I don't know how she even found And I did a session with this woman and her friends. And... I don't know. What I was doing was calling in love and calling in support for her with the sound and letting her be remembered that all her ancestors were with her and that, and, and this was not verbalized. I mean, this was all the ancestors. There were so many ancestors that came into the room with the sound because sound carries different um, frequencies with it. And so I did get a report back from the woman who called this together about a month later that the doctors are puzzled, but the tumor's shrinking. So it's like, what happened? I mean, how does healing even occur? Did I just create an atmosphere for this woman to have some hope? Because she had came in with hopeless despair. And that's a killer. You know, hopeless despair is a killer. I think that music gives us some kind of a place of refuge where we can come back to our own center and remember who we are. And remember that we're strong enough to withstand anything. And so we really can find a place of strength somehow in our, in our core center, if that makes any sense. I don't know if it does. Words oh, it are- totally does. And, and also, like, I'm thinking that that's the, in every single major world religion. Music is part of the healing. It's part of the coming together. You know, it's, it is the antidote. Like, even when you're wailing your sorrow... You're doing it together and you're doing it out loud and you're not holding it alone. Right. Or people crying together at a memorial service. It's that's the healing is hearing <laughs> it's sound, you know, <laughs> that all that we make and we have been so stifled. And, you know, I talk about this a lot because I recently lost my 15 year partner to cancer and, you know, going the grief process, it's not a quiet thing. If you will, if you really like, tune into what your body needs. But did I scream and wail in front of other people? Uh Uh-uh. Because we don't do that in our society. Other societies do. And I think it's a form of feeling that support and feeling part of the tribe and not that there's something wrong with you because you're crying for six months. I saw a, um, a wonderful documentary film on women in Palestine wailing. Like it was expected to loudly wail and and to be held in that it's very it felt very evacuative in a way and and um to be witnessed in that clearing yeah it's a clearing music can be is i mean sound is a clearing and think about like in the 60s when like the beatles and the, the groups like girls screaming yeah. like how cathartic was that? A lot of times when I'm working with in, with groups, you know, people will 
I can see energetically like the block in the throat chakra. Like you you can feel it like they can't speak their truth. Their their truth has never been met. It's never been received in, um, by others. And so they've learned to shut down or they've been judged for it. And so this, uh, it's like a, it's like a sense of constriction, even visible in the energy body. So what you're saying is beyond grief, I mean, gr- grieving, of course, but an ecstasy also, like people who can't make sound in the bedroom, like you're orgasming and you're like, oh, oh right. And I'm like holding it in, you know, so it, it feels like a more universal thing for a lot of people. Yeah. And so we we don't have permission to make sound. I, I cringe when I'm any place in public and you're supposed to be quiet and there's a baby and start the baby starts fussing and how annoyed people get. We have been so trained that nobody has the right to invade our sound space. <laughs> and yet we allow phones and dings and ticks and you know, things to constantly be calling our attention out of our own place. But let a baby start crying, man. And that mother's or father's going to go, you know, and, and most of the work I've ever done with people in voice studying, you know, voice to empower their voice or get it out of their body somehow is always fifth chakra. And they've always been told to stop singing, don't make or stop crying and I'll get, or I'll give you something to cry about because when you cry, you make noise. It's hard for people to receive for parents. Some kind of parents can't receive that. And so do we want everybody to go around screaming? No, but I think that music gives us an opportunity and a place that it is appropriate to make noises that we don't get to make noise in normal society Mm -hmm. or dance together. And there's something wonderful about being in groups because you're not soloed out. It's not all on your shoulder and you can be very safe in the group and you can dance more wildly than you would. You can sing more strongly than you would because you don't have to be afraid of making mistakes. I mean, I had people in the choir that were basically tone deaf and I just stick them between two strong singers and tell them that, you know, if they got in any trouble or any fear just to lean on their singer and their person next to them and that they had they had wheels behind on, on them so they weren't going to fall off their bike and when you give i think 90 percent of helping people to um heal if you want to use that word their voice is about just giving them permission to be themselves i mean giving them permission to just make sound i love this topic this topic is so deep all right so we're back to where we started a little bit that that when you sing with others you're co-regulating you're losing the sense of self-judgment. You're learning how to lean in and be part of a larger field. Um, you're expressing your natural, original right to be vocal, to be the musical being that you're born to be. And returning to that has a great opportunity for healing the self and healing culture, healing the space in between us. Returning to the right to be a musical being well, it's kind of like the the bird, you know, we've all been synthesized. We've all been trained to to talk and walk and be a synthesized person to fit into society. And somehow music uh, allows us to be in society, sing the song, but sing it in from us, sing it from that place of connection. I think the thing I like the most about singing is the breath work, because it's, it's a static breath work. Yeah. 
you're engaging the entire infrastructure of the body to make sound. And you're also participating literally like the world is breathing you more intensely. And I can't like really describe it and hold my phone at the same time, but it's like everybody's inhaling. So everybody's taking in the air and then everybody's not just blowing it out. Everybody's taking it in and then extending it. And so it's this contraction and expansion into the room, like the room, the, the air contracts in the room and then it expands. And so there is, that's part of the rhythm too. And that, that in a pranayama, the extended exhale is a nervous system calming. Talk about the vagus nerve being calmed down, you know, or I mean, in the opposite, it doesn't, it's not always calming. It's, it's activating. It's like I said, it's arousing. If you go hear a, a hot band that you love to sing along with, and even if you're not, if you're just dancing, you're aroused. And so it's, so I walked out to turn off some water and I was hit by the scent of lemons in my yard. And I, and what I thought was, we have forgotten to live as sensual beings. And music is an avenue for us to become sensual again, to become in tune to our senses and our sensuality and that it's okay to be free of our limitations and our minds and our fears, even if it's just for a song, you know? But I, I, I like that connection to sensuality and how, how many people struggle with their own sexual intimacy and not saying that, you know, music is going to make us <laughs> have clear up all our problems, but there's something about that. It speaks to the senses in a way that nothing else can. When we smell lemons, it, it, there's something that happens in our bodies. And when we sing music, I think that we're connecting with the music that's always outside of us or that we're part of that we're swimming in. We're swimming in music. Let me put it that way. I feel like that's way. a good song prompt. Mm -hmm. Swimming in music, <laughs> swimming in music. Diving deep today, going to fly with the clouds and travel great distances, returning as a drop of water, swimming, swimming in music. I think we have a hit. <laughs> we, we definitely have a joint Unique expression, if nothing else. Yes, we do. <laughs> Are you going to continue doing uh, private sound bowl sessions as you do your travels to learn? What's your intention? You know, Christine, I'm in a really interesting space in my life. I My choir was shut down with COVID, and that was like almost 20 years of me being in this wonderful container. And really, everything I've ever learned in my life came into fruition in that choir. And... I got to exercise it all. So that was closed. And then my relationship with my partner was struggling. And so what healed it, ironically, was he got cancer. And so I had to make the decision to stay or, or heal the relationship. And I stayed and we, you know, became, we came back together again. So I lost my, my work, but more like my soul work than I lost. I was losing my partner relationship, my emotional stability. And then he got cancer and then he died. And he was really my stable ground person because I'm, I'm 
I have a very neurologically um, interesting brain, and it helps me to have people around me who are grounded. So he was that. So I kind of lost that. Then I, I have to sell my home, and it includes my studio where I do all my work. So I'm pretty much giving up most of the things that I've ever relied on for my identity in my life. And I could hold on to the sound bowls, but I'm not. I'm putting them away for a while. Well, thank you for all of the work you've put in uh, and for the wisdom that you share today. You have so much knowledge and experience. I'm really honored. You know, one thing more I just want to mention is because I'm a little bit older than you and sort of the aging process is a little different, and especially I've had so much death, like everything has died in my life, you know? And so it's like, I'm, I feel the um, companionship of death and it reminds me of how much, how important singing is for people in transition into the death space, you know, when they're actually dying in hospice and stuff. And we don't have to get into that topic, but I think it's a real, a real beautiful avenue that like threshold choirs and things like that are helping people with to stop being verbal and sing when a person's in that process of letting go of their body. Adam's doing, Adam's doing a lot of that. He's called on to bring his harmonium and sing people out. And um, I notice like a huge upwelling of emotion at that idea. Yeah. Yeah, like sort of riding the wave, the frequency wave. Yeah, I have someone that may be starting to cross over, and I know I'll, I'll be going to sing to her because she was somebody that was in the front row with choir every single day at the center. Mm. You know, because the audience is just as important as the singers. By the way, we didn't talk about that either. Whole another subject. Well, what's the <laughs> yeah? What is the audience? What is even an audience? Well, that's what I mean. The people that the list, the listeners. You know, the receivers. Yeah, the quality of attention that the audience brings and how they're showing up is like a is like an, an energetic circuit. Yeah. If you've oh, got yeah. an if you've got an engaged audience who's really paying attention, whoa man. Right. And I mean the whole room would be like rolling, you know? Rolling. Pulsing. It was so beautiful. Rolling. We'll dedicate it to <laughs> Tina. Rolling. There you go. Rolling. Rolling on the river. Well, so good to spend time with you, Christine. I love you. I love you so much. I do too. Okay, now we're winding this thing down, but I was still left with some questions about A440 pitch. And so here's a little research on that just to fill it in. That A440, which is also known as Stuttgart pitch or concert pitch, refers to the musical note A above middle C as having a frequency of 440 hertz. This standard serves as a reference point to calibrate musical instruments and to standardize musical pitch across different instruments and musical groups, as Claire said. Before the adoption of a standard pitch, there was significant variation in the pitches used for tuning, which could lead to difficulties in playing together, which was problematic for orchestras or other groups with a variety of instruments. So the adoption of A440 as a global standard began in the late 19th and early 20th century, and it became the international standard for concert pitch. So in 1955, it was officially endorsed by the International Organization for Standardization, and that's how it came to be. I mean, you can imagine that if people were thinking an A wasn't an A, wasn't always an A, that it would cause difficulty in playing together. 
but how it's affected musical expression, aside from ensuring consistency and compatibility and tuning, it has also had some limitations. Some people have argued that A440 is arbitrary and that it limits the expressiveness of music by enforcing a rigid standard. Historically, different regions, periods, and eras in time and types of music have used different tuning systems that can give a different character to the music. For example, Baroque music is sometimes performed using a lower pitch standard, A415, which some feel better suits the music of that period. There's also some discussion on pitch and emotional impact, that different pitches can reportedly create different emotional or physical responses in listeners, uh, so that the enforcement of A440 as a standard may limit the exploration of these different responses, which is in line with what Claire said. Um, Also, there's one other thing. You know, I've been talking about breath work. I also write about breath work in The Nine Gifts. The gift of breath is one of those things totally can heal you. Breath as medicine is a thing. And singing, uh, as we were discussing, is kind of a long exhale pranayama. It relates to respiration and breath control. And it has a lot of, there's a lot of overlap uh, between extending the breath on the exhale pranayama and singing in increasing lung capacity, reducing stress and increasing mindfulness. Okay, the last thing I want to say before we close today is if you're interested in mantra, there was a movie done in 2018 called Mantra Sounds into Silence. It's an uplifting documentary about Kirtan as a practice. And I think it's just such a lovely film, and you'll really understand a lot more about what happens to people in that state. Uh, it's available on Amazon Prime for, I think, $3.99 as a rental mantra sounds into silence. I also wanted to correct myself. What I was talking about was actually a movie about Lebanese women called Where Do We Go Now? And these women are trying to ease religious tensions between Christians and Muslims in their village in the hopes of staving off war. It's kind of a comedy or a dramedy that won a lot of awards in 2012. It was a nominee for the Critics' Choice Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. It was the winner of the Murex Door, the Best Lebanese Film Award. It was the most valuable film of the year for Cinema for Peace. It was a winner for the Oslo Films from the South Festival, the Cannes Film Festival, Stockholm Film Festival. The, the prizes go on and on. Very beautiful film. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, the podcast is sponsored by Rosebud Woman, rosewoman.com, which makes the most beautiful body products, intimate care products, candles, lifestyle products, body brushes. Look for some new fun stuff coming up for the holidays, ingestible wellness. If you're listening to this before Father's Day, can I just suggest the kava and kana gummies are a great little relaxation for dads anywhere and for women who are playing the role of dad, which quite a few of you are. So that's at rosewoman.com. Lots of love. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed Claire's conversation, then please share it. Please rate. Please subscribe. Okay. Love you lots. Go sing your hearts out. Bye.